Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 27th of September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. Another just-in-time delivery, Mike. Yeah, we've had some tech problems this morning. <laughs> if if we disappear off the stream, it's a it's a recurrence. Don't worry about it. We'll we'll get everything back up and running again if we possibly can. Now, uh, well, at the weekend there were a number of uh, protests around the world, a number of demonstrations, rather is maybe a better wor word. This is uh, the London one. Lots of people there again. Uh, did you see any coverage of this in the mainstream press? Well, of course not, Mike, because nobody's allowed to have an opinion which goes against the government at the moment. Uh, indeed. So that's really all I'm going to say about it. Uh, impressive turnout once again. Yeah. So we say well done to all the people who did turn out and the fact that they're there makes a big difference. Um, but isn't it amazing how um, whenever things happen in these days, it seems to fit very well with policy. Um, so here we have the headline in the uh, in the mail this morning. Petrol crisis uh, forces thousands of commuters to work from home while stranded teachers threaten a return to Zoom lessons as Boris calls in the army to drive tankers after motorists chase fuel trucks, trucks and queue for pumps from 5 a.m. So it's back to working from home. Uh, and uh, we don't need lockdown for that anymore. We just need to create uh, a bogus fuel crisis. Um, fits all the policies, really. It fits the net zero uh, COP26 policy, you know, as we head towards COP26. It, fit, it uh, fits the uh, lockdown policy and so on. Uh, but, uh, well, we mentioned on Friday that, of course, uh, the, this was going to result in the armed forces coming out on the streets to help deliver fuel. Uh, and strangely enough, some of the mainstream media this morning uh, or yesterday and today continuing to push this narrative. It's as if the decision hasn't been made yet. Uh, but we did mention on, sorry, you were going to... Well, I'll just add to that. Uh, this, this headline is as if we have, we still have substantial armed forces, which of course we, we don't. We have armed forces which can barely do the tasks that are already set for them. And yet the, the announcement is as if we've, we've got troops aplenty to come out on the streets and drive these lorries and administer vaccines and support the police. But the reality is we can't do any of these things because the armed forces have been decimated. Um, but also on Friday, we mentioned, the, or we asked the question, who is uh, driving this fake um, shortage? And of course, it is the mainstream press. So this was the uh, BBC, as we showed on Friday. The headline was, buy petrol as normal, says minister. Uh, alongside a nice big image, there are four petrol pumps all uh, shut down and so on. Um, but David, uh, the question is, who was it actually uh, supposedly leaked this information to the BBC, which caused them to produce this propaganda in the first place? Well, according to the Express and many others, it was a former BBC executive who is now working in the road haulage industry. And uh, he leaked to um, the world uh, some comments from a BP executive in a private meeting. Uh, and this seemed to spark the whole thing off. And of course, he would have friends in his former employer, the BBC, to uh, provide a conduit for that leak, wouldn't he? Uh, of course. Yes, no more to say on that. We'll come more on the BBC in a little bit. But uh, also on Friday, we were raising this question of what is the situation with Brexit? Is Brexit anything to do with this? Uh, and uh, we showed this from uh, Global Chain News uh, and their headline from 
some time ago from uh, August was uh, driver shortages pan-European. So the Europeans, uh, the European drivers unions today have basically said to the uh, UK government, well, forget it. You might be offering visas, but we're not coming because, uh, you know, we've got enough to do, basically. Uh, and uh, so this is a pan-European problem. It's not a UK problem alone. Uh, and as we also pointed out that Unite uh, plus this uh, organization, Track Trans, back uh, in March and April last year, had really been asking the question, what would be the effect of coronavirus on the road haulage industry? Uh, and our point on Friday was, that, of course, uh, you know, this wasn't an, an unlikely scenario. Everybody understood that these problems were already in the system uh, and ready to uh, show themselves at the drop of a hat or the drop of a BBC headline, as the case may be. But I just wanted to highlight uh, an email we got in from someone uh, and uh, just to put a bit another dimension to this as well. Uh, and this person said, I used to work as a receptionist at a large GP clinic in Cornwall. We had many HGV drivers calling to say they needed their physical to update their HGV driver's license. We were instructed to say we were not performing these exams due to the COVID pandemic. Uh, they desperately tried to explain they would not be able to continue working. The instruction did not change. We directed them to a center in Plymouth who we thought was still performing those, but, but I do not know for certain that that took place. Uh, nobody, to my knowledge, took any proactive action. And if the government knew of the shortage, which they did, uh, that was there from 2019. Uh, they seem not to have taken provision to allevi alleviate the situation. One more nail in the coffin. Uh, so, David, uh, that, of course, is a, a, a witness testimony, anecdotal, I, I accept. And we don't know how widespread that was around the country. So if anybody has any more information to add to that. But it seems that there are many uh, dominoes aligned uh, to make the whole lot topple over at the, at the appropriate moment uh, over the last two years or so. Well, this is exactly correct. The, the, the economy is complex. Uh, you cannot simply turn it off and on uh, by some fiat pronouncement that, uh, that comes from a scientific advisor. Um, the people who have been playing with the economy don't know what they're doing. They're not competent. Um, they've broken down all sorts of supply chains, including supply chains for drivers. They've ca caused huge changes in how the economy works without any thought for the implications. And now they've got some trouble. Um, I was uh, buying fuel in Scotland without any difficulty, actually, at the weekend. But uh, on the door to the petrol station, um, there was an advert. Uh, ad advertising for DHL drivers, £39,000 per, per annum. Now, of course, price will fix things. And I would point out that uh, what this uh, shortage is showing is that we need fewer people offering uh, gender re reassignment surgery, fewer people offering um, inclusivity training, and more people driving trucks and vans. Uh, and also, I would suggest more pay to encourage them to, uh, to undertake that work and also better conditions um, in, in terms of overnight stops, showers, car parking, uh, truck parking, and all the rest of it, um, that uh, if you talk to truckers, you will find that they complain bitterly about the, the, the environment, the, the circumstances in which they have to work. Uh, maybe if we made it more attractive for people to, to uh, be in this industry, there would be more of them. And maybe if the government uh, sucked less of the total resource out of the entire economy, uh, there would be more of everything. Uh, indeed. So where does that leave us in terms of the oil refiner refineries themselves? Because the government maintains that there is no fuel shortage. It's merely a delivery issue. 
Um, what is uh, the Guardian saying here with respect to Stanlow Oil Refinery? I, I found this a strange article. I thought this was another um, another piece of scaremongering because they're saying that the, the oil refinery, which is the second largest in Britain and, and provides a very substantial portion of all um, uh, fuel for cars on the roads of Britain, uh, is in the brink of collapse because of this unpaid unpaid £223 million of uh, back VAT from the coronavirus. But when you get into the article, it was over £700 million and they've paid £550 million back already and they're trying to negotiate the timing of the last bit of payment. It doesn't sound like a crisis to me. Uh, that, I thought, was uh, more scaremongering just to stoke the fear. Yeah, well, OK, what's happening on the ground? How does this... Uh, this uh latest scam affect people email to uk column here about morrison's uh the person says i've taken the liberty of writing to you with capitals in the subject line because this is extremely urgent i'll have to say to other people you can't all do it otherwise the stuff doesn't get through um and uh, the subject uh, the author says here needs to be shouted from the rooftops my friend is in her late 70s and she's looking after a husband who's bedridden and on a palliative care system. One of the bluebird carers has just told her she was refused petrol at 6.30 a.m. this morning, Sunday the 26th of September at Morrison's Newquay, as she wasn't an emergency worker. If these carers aren't classed as emergency workers, then many elderly people will suffer and die in their homes. Can you please highlight this? So we're delighted to do this. What I find so disturbing about this, uh, Mike, is that is that we have now got supermarkets drawn into the policing of the system. It was done, obviously, uh, for COVID. But um, now we're seeing that uh, we, we've got the, uh, the supermarket uh, petrol station effectively deciding who's going to get fuel based on their knowledge, whatever that is. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, a reminder just quickly again that on Friday we were talking about the uh, uh, the military uh, helping ease the mounting fuel crisis. Uh, uh, this was the plan anyway. Um, the A major feature of what we did on Friday was to talk about this merging of military and civilian function, uh, institutions and so on. So I just wanted to show uh, this from Australia. Uh, and this is a tweet from Aaron Ginn saying, this is all for COVID. Come on, don't be so naive. So just let's just have a look at the, the video clip. So, you know, this is a, a militarized truck uh, with militarized police on it heading off to what a, a demonstration on, on, Sunday, on Sunday or Saturday. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the point that the person is making is that this, there's more to this than COVID. Uh, and yeah. I, th I hope we showed that on Friday. If you haven't seen Friday's program, uh, please... Uh, uh, go and watch it. Uh, but uh, I also want to show you this. This is from the Parliament of Australia. Uh, the Defence Legislation Amendment, brackets Enhancement of Defence Force Response to Emergencies, Bill 2020. Now, this, of course, uh, was published, I believe, in October last year. Um, I'm not sure how far it has gone through uh, the process towards becoming an act of Parliament. But I just wanted to show you the type of thinking that's going on in the Australian government. And we're, we're doing this because Australia, of course, seems to be leading the way, uh, along with one or two other parts of the world on this type of thing. So let's have a look and see. Let's look at uh, Schedule 2 on this, um, because they're talking about immunities, uh, immunities to pro for prosecution. Uh, we know that the vaccine companies have immunities, but now apparently the military uh, have immunities as well in Australia, or they will have if this bill is passed. 
Uh, so the Schedule 2 says, Immunities proposes amendments to provide Australian Defence Force members and other defence personnel with immunity from civil and criminal liability in certain cases while performing duties to support civil emergency and disaster preparedness, recovery and response. And this includes COVID-19 because that's considered uh, a civil emergency. Uh, but here's the other bit, to permit the CDF or the Secretary to extend that immunity to other persons, including members of foreign military forces and foreign police forces. And uh, so there was a bit of, prop, uh, bit of uh, uh, controversy over this uh, particular bill at the end of last year about whether it was giving authority for foreign military and police forces to come into Australia uh, to assist with an emergency response. Uh, and there were many people suggesting that it uh, does and others suggesting that it doesn't. Uh, but of course, it seems pretty black and white there that uh, not only does it permit uh, and encourage foreign forces to come in, whether that be military or police forces, but it is also providing immunity uh, to those from prosecution under certain circumstances. Uh, and who are they, Mike? Who, who, for the implication, who are these foreign military forces? Are they talking about the British and the Americans? Are they talking about the Chinese? Well, it's unlikely as a result of AUKUS that they're talking about the Chinese. So it's much more likely to be the British and the Americans. Uh, but uh, David, I don't know what your thoughts are on that uh, piece of legislation. I hadn't come across it before. Um, it, it, seems, <laughs> it seems quite incredible in many ways. Uh, well, well, it does. And it seems like so many of these things, arbitrary and without limit. Uh, essentially, the, in, in, in Scotland, um, it's all been done through statutory instruments. There's one piece of enabling legislation that essentially says the government can do whatever it wants as long as it cites COVID as the reason. And, and we're seeing increasingly dictatorial government here, certainly in Australia, um, and, and all around the formerly free world. And the um, excuse is, of course... Um, a disease with a 99 point something percent survival rate. It's very strange. A lot of people in Australia reaching out to UK column to say how bad it is in Australia and to, to say that people in UK really need to understand how bad it is in Australia uh, because what's happening there will come to UK. And I think there's some truth in this. Email into the UK column, a uh, bit small on screen, so I'll do my best to read some of this. Uh, it says that I'm a teacher in Victoria and we've just been mandated along with nurses and tradies to be jabbed by October the 18th. We knew this was coming, but it's still terrible when it comes. Victoria is now a police state and everyone lives in fear. The media portrays anyone as protesting as a neo-Nazi and many people believe this. It's on a scale you can't imagine. We have a few excellent politicians who are the lone voices amongst all the others. It's worth following their telegram groups, Senator Malcolm Roberts, George Christensen MP and Craig Kelly MP, amongst all the others. Uh, their channels are showing the true police brutality and the military-grade weapons now being used against ordinary people. There is fear everywhere, though many still live under the delusion that the government is keeping them safe and we should be complying so that eventually we will be set free. Victorian Premier Dan Andrews is actually a Labour politician but has turned on the workers and it's rumoured that he has been given a lot of money to, 
uh, sorry, is given a lot of money to the unions to also turn on the workers. He's openly saying that any unvaccinated people will be locked out of the economy and denied health care. Already there are reports of women being denied cesarean births or dialysis treatment because of no jab. One of my colleagues reported that on the death of his friend's father, they were offered $7,000 to list it as a COVID death as then the hospital would get thousands extra in funding. They refused the money. I've also seen reports of Aboriginal young people being given $500 for getting the jab as hesitancy is high in their communities. There's a recent ABC News report where Sherbrooke Elder was given the jab but died of a heart attack six days later. And there's a link if you freeze that screen. And the end of this quite long email said this, I would urge you to investigate if you can the New South Wales mass vaccination of Sydney teenagers who were bussed into the uh, Kudos Bank arena. Uh, it says 24,000 in one weekend in August with no parents allowed. It is reported that four teens died and some footage was released, but it's impossible to find anything anywhere about it now. Our country used to be a wonderful place of freedom and tolerance, but people have been locked down for so, so long now in Victoria that they're losing all hope and sense of reason. The isolation has had a huge effect on mental health and people now are so thankful when they're told by our rulers that they may now use the playground with their children or they may now have a picnic with a couple of Vax friends. It is so sad to see, but some are beginning to wake up. Thank you for your amazing work, which is being a beacon of light, light to many around the world. So a very poignant uh, email, and I think it's one that the UK public really need to pay attention to because many of the uh, things happening in Australia almost seem to be a testbed of how hard the government can screw down the population. If that's a model being tested, uh, is UK the next to experience it? Uh, no, the next uh, big policy area that coming up over the next few weeks is uh, COP26, of course, uh, which is net zero policy and uh, climate change and so on, David. But uh, the Daily Mail here reporting that uh, uh, Rolls-Royce uh, is going to uh, uh, produce 16 mini nuclear re reactors in order to help meet net zero targets. Well, uh, your, your summary there is more accurate than the actual headline. Uh, which says poised to approve 16 mini nuclear reactors to hit net zero. Now, a couple of interesting things about this article. Uh, firstly, have a look at the, the, the picture there uh, of the proposed uh, mini nuclear station. And, and tell me, Mike, is anybody in authority actually worried about sea level rise? Uh, no. I think, I think, no. I think not. <laughs> Um, uh, secondly, they go on to you know to talk about sixteen plants creating uh, forty thousand jobs, uh, and uh, they talk about mini reactors producing four hundred and fifty megawatts, a seventh of what conventional power stations such as such as Hinkley Point produces. So this is the equivalent of two nuclear power stations, and of course, many more than two nuclear power stations are due to be taken offline as they reach the end of their lives. So on the surface, this is too small to have any effect on any sort of target, however logical or illogical the target may be. Um, now, it may be uh, the first wave of, of something much larger. Um, we don't know because the article doesn't go into that. It's just, it's just a very small amount of generation for such a grandiose headline. Uh, 
yes, indeed. Now, Rolls-Royce is very keen to push forward with this technology, and they're hoping to sell it around the world as well. Uh, but uh, yes, your point is, is well made there. But that brings us on to, uh, to this. Um, and you're going to have to explain. Well, this is a Guardian, and I don't know that I can fully explain. So this is Greta. And, and somebody in, in a, a fit of meanness has, has poured what looks like crude oil over. So she's like a she's like a little bird that's been uh, in the sea when the, when there's been a tanker hit, hitting the rocks. Uh, once again, there's only one eye visible. Uh, I'm starting to think Greta only has one eye because any photograph I see of her, she seems to have one eye covered. Um, and there's something uh, deeply unpleasant about that image. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. There doesn't seem to be any logic to it. Uh, the, the headline says the time is now. So again, the, the, the implication is panic, emergency, you know, it's all going to end, none of which is true, um, other than by government policy. Uh, the government policy might make a lot of things end. Um, and this is part of the hype as we run up to COP26. Certainly is, David. I'm, I'm going to help you out a bit on this one because I was also fascinated when I saw the image. I thought I'd do a little bit more work on it. Uh, so here's The Guardian. And uh, what The Guardian actually produced is a sort of interactive article on this. So you'll notice that uh, although she's got her eyes closed in this uh, image on screen, uh, we'll see how it develops. Apparently, it wasn't real oil. It was olive oil mixed with paint. So it was she was safe. Relax. She was safe. Oh, they did actually pour it over her head. It wasn't a Photoshop job. She went to the Guardian. She she went to the Guardian especially to be, I'm going to use this word deliberately, anointed with black goo in order for the Guardian to produce uh, this uh, article. Now, this is interactive. So as you read through the article, this is what happens. Uh, you'll see how it moves through and um, you'll see that the goo gradually comes down over her face and uh, then out pops the one eye. So it's particularly spooky stuff. Uh, but it says that Greta Thunberg has made the ultimate sacrifice for the Guardian. She's allowed us to turn her into a human oil spillage. The treacly black stuff is dripping from her hair down her nose past her cheeks onto her neck and shoulders. Um, so this is a really disgusting piece of work, in my opinion. Uh, so I've taken a bit of it out. Here's this. Um, Greta says, it, I might be naive because I'm very young, but naivety and childishness are sometimes a good thing. Well, sometimes a good thing, but sometimes they can be misused and cause a lot of problem. Do you like the, uh, the tear in this one, uh, David, with the uh, black goo produced by The Guardian. And um, next, uh, or very shortly after this, this image pops up um, with a quote from her. I mean, in one way, we're all climate deniers because we're not acting as if it's a crisis. And I was struck by the image because, of course, I'm thinking, well, that's an image about rubbish. Is it to do with, with uh, climate? But all will become clear in a minute. So um, this is uh, some of the text from the article. It says, age date, she was shown a film of an armada of plastic assailing our oceans. She couldn't get it out of her head. She started to read about it and became, quote, more and more terrified. She was exceptionally bright with a photographic memory 
but was also withdrawn and quiet and she was becoming more so. So this uh, little girl who's clearly got some serious issues is shown a film which actually terrifies her, um, but we're to pay attention to what's in her mind. At the age of 11, she fell into a deep depression and stopped eating and talking. Why does she think she was so unhappy? One of the reasons was I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that people didn't seem to care about anything, that everyone just cared about themselves rather than everything that was happening in the world. And being an oversensitive child with autism, it was definitely something I thought about a lot and it made me sad. Was it also because she was bullied at school? Yeah, to some extent, says Greta. Well, this um, disgusting piece of journalism produced by this man, Simon Hattonstone, uh, he says that Thunberg was at home with her father for a year by the time she was ready to return to school. Initially a specialist autism school, then a grammar school. She'd been diagnosed with Asperger's, obsessive compulsive disorder and selective mutism. Thunberg says the diagnosis came as a relief. At the time, uh, Beata, Greta's younger sister, had also been diagnosed with neurodevelopmental orders, disorders and the family was imploding. Uh, Milena and Savante, the parents, wrote a book about this period with a Bergman-esque title, Scenes from the Heart. It was published on the 23rd of August 2018, three days after Greta's first school strike. In the book, Milena describes, as the mother, how the 11-year-old Greta was slowly disappearing into some kind of darkness and little by little, bit by bit, she seemed to stop functioning, she stopped playing the piano, she stopped laughing, she stopped talking, she stopped eating. They were, she concluded, burned out people on a burned out planet. And we'll give you this uh, last bit and then have a bit of discussion. Melena explained why she'd felt compelled to write it in the first place because we felt like shit. I felt like shit, Svante's felt like shit, the children felt like shit, the planet felt like shit, even the dog felt like shit. So um, what do you say that uh, this is the family, this is the little girl who's got clearly some serious issues being manipulated by the world's press uh, to advise adults throughout the world as to how they should deal with a number of serious issues. David, this article is so incredible. You will see by the, the ending statement, ultimately why it's so incredible. But to me, this is utter abuse of this very, very vulnerable, well, she's a young lady 18, now, think, but yes. she's a young lady, but initially we are seeing a young child with severe issues simply being manipulated. It was striking that the uh, book release was so beautifully timed just at the school strike. Um, it looks like a campaign. It looks like self-promotion. Is this the way that they wanted to get out of the malaise? This is, um, it, 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 reminds, it reminds me of um, nothing so much as uh, fake religious organisations that uh, suss out that, that an easy way of getting, of getting money is to offer redemption to people. Yeah. So we're just uh, two slides to end it off, but um, this is what Simon Hattonstone from The Guardian said, which I just, just stunned by this, this man's 
opinion, November's COP26 climate conference in Glasgow is due to be attended by more than 200 nations and will be one of the largest gatherings of the world leaders in history. But many people only want to hear from one person, the autistic teenager with the pigtails. Does this man really believe this drivel that he's written? Yes. Does, does he really believe it? Yes. I think, unfortunately, he does. But let's end it with this. Um, here's Greta. She's quoted as saying, I didn't have the courage to get friends. Now I have many. I really see the value of friendship. Apart from the climate, almost nothing else matters. So nothing else matters. God doesn't matter. Loving others, helping others, helping the poor. Uh, and not communicating and understanding people who dare challenge what she mistakenly believes about the climate um, with this young lady who's been obviously traumatized as a child and suffered some serious issues. So what happens now, I've used the word prostituted, and I think this is correct. She's being prostituted by the media as the intellect and role model for adults and children across the world. Um, this is obscene, and I suppose that we shouldn't be surprised that The Guardian has taken the lead in presenting this article. Okay, if you like what we do and you like, uh, you'd like you like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and also do share material on the various uh, platforms. Um, and I just want to say a massive thank you to everybody that has uh, picked up a UK Column hoodie so far uh, with the price of energy going through the roof, of course. Uh, it'd be very useful to have one of those in your in our freezing cold bedrooms. They are very uh, smart, actually. Yes. Uh, so uh, so thank you very much. And uh, uh, we will get those out as soon as possible. OK, well, we'd like to say that um, a little while ago, we advertised this interview with a French lady, a pharmaceutical statistician, a biostatistician called Christine Cotton. Uh, she, in principle, was talking about the American VAERS vaccine adverse reaction database and explaining what all the problems were with that information. Uh, part one will be published later today, uh, we're delighted to say. And the key bit about part one is this lady is explaining in a lot of detail how the setup uh, to a vaccine trial is put together and what she shows with a great deal of um, accurate information and detail is that it would be impossible to create a trial with the speed that was used for the COVID-19 vaccines. So watch out for that being posted on the UK Column website. Okay, let's uh, head over to uh, Benoit Coure, uh, sorry, the uh, head of the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, the financial system, he says, is shifting under our feet. Uh, the time has passed for central banks to get going. So what is he talking about? Well, the Bank for International Settlements is going to test uh, the use of central bank digital currencies with Australia, Malaysia, Singapore and South Africa in an experiment that could lead to a more efficient global payments platform. Uh, they have a code name for this. It's Project Dunbar. Uh, they announced uh, earlier in, in September, about two weeks ago, uh, and the study aims to develop prototypes for a common platform that will enable international settlement in digital fiat currencies issued by central banks. Uh, and this system would allow direct transactions in central bank digital currencies between institutions while reducing time and cost, uh, according to the Bank for International Settlements. So that's all really fantastic news, isn't it? And please understand the sarcasm in that. Uh, so let's just remind ourselves what they're planning here. 
Um, so they have uh, had this annual work program set out for these issues for a little while now. And they were looking at a proof of concept platform using multiple wholesale uh, central bank digital currencies to explore the feasibility of faster and cheaper cross-border payments. And that is now moved into this pilot scheme uh, between uh, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, and South Africa. Uh, and also a technological research project and associate prototypes for tiered retail CDBC distribution architectures. Uh, we'll come on to that in a second when I show you the diagram, remind you of the diagram. Uh, and they also want to implement a distributed ledger technology prototype for distribution of tokenized green bonds to retail investors. Um, so this is a bit of uh, blockchain. Uh, get those green bonds out to you and me because we want to invest in all these new green technologies that central banks are so excited about these days. But just to remind everybody what the, the thing is going to look like, uh, they intend to create uh, several forms of central bank money. Uh, it's all based on central on digital central bank money. Uh, and there are two main types. The type that's only available to financial institutions, which is wholesale central bank digital money, but also uh, a type which is available to the general economy. Uh, and that might be account-based retail CDBCs or token-based retail CDBCs. So they're attempting to capture some of the Bitcoin market here. Uh, but the key point here is that CDBCs will be offered to you and I at, at, to do our day-to-day -day business with. Uh, and as many people are warning about now, this effectively takes us in the direction of total control because, of course, if we're only able to spend our CDBC currency in particular shops, perhaps only 15 miles away from our homes or within that radius, uh, then that becomes a bit of a problem, David. Uh, and it's interesting that, uh, David, the, the uh, World Economic Forum was hosting an event a couple of days ago. We'll cover it on Wednesday's programme on the 15 miles, uh, 15 kilometer city. Uh, and so this is being pushed forward uh, uh, very hard, this notion that uh, we should be able to do all our business within a 15 kilometer uh, radius. Uh, and uh, CDBCs very much part of that. Yeah, th this idea is everywhere. We first came across it in a policy document for the Scottish NHS. Would you believe? So it's it's down to the, um, the 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 fine detail of policy planning already in government circles. A um, couple of things strike me. Do you know why it's called Project Dunbar? Because I don't, and it's a bit bizarre, right? Now a couple of things occur. Maybe they happen to know that Dunbar is the sunniest place in Scotland, and they're trying to be optimistic. I doubt it, but it's one possible explanation. Uh, they might know that it's where uh, the, the Scottish nationhood fell to the uh, the the, the, the um, nasty um, totalitarian that was Oliver Cromwell. Uh, maybe that's what they're alluding to. I would love to know. Um, but finally, I'd point out that uh, the Mises Institute are running a, a, a piece on this at the moment, um, looking at central bank digital currency and comparing it uh, to a Lord of the Rings metaphor. They're calling it one ring to rule them all. So they're, they're basically suggesting that this will allow central control of each individual central bank and hence central control of the entire world economy and hence of the globe. Uh, do you think they're wrong? Uh, no, they're absolutely right. So let's move on with it because here is HSBC uh, because they're running a project as well. Uh, and here's their press release, new forms of digital money could spur growth. Uh, this is fantastic news because the economy coming out of COVID needs growth, uh, a growth spurt, doesn't it? So digital currencies are going to sort that out. 
So let's see what uh, Noel Quinn, the uh, group CEO of HSBC, was saying. HBC, HSBC is working with central banks in the United Kingdom, France, Canada, Singapore, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and the United Arab Emirates to, to explore plans for digital currencies. Uh, it doesn't end there. Uh, here is uh, the Central Bank of Chile, uh, and they um, are promoting their central bank digital currencies at the moment. They're developing those at the moment. So uh, last week, the president of the Central Bank of Chile, Mario Marcel, spoke at length about the potential for a central bank digital currency at a seminar organized by the Ch Chilean Ministry of Finance and the Inter-American Development Bank. Uh, and one of the primary motivations for CDBC in Chile, apparently, is the promotion of financial inclusion, uh, because like many, many developing countries, a reasonable proportion of their citizens are unbanked. And the way to solve that is to make them get bank accounts and have central bank digital currencies as their mechanism of choice. Um, then we've got Jerome Powell here uh, from the Federal Reserve because he was saying the other day, the Fed is working proactively to evaluate whether to issue a CD CBDC and if so, in what form. Uh, and then finally, uh, and the probably most importantly, uh, the uh, House of Lords, um, uh, Sorry, the House of Lords Economics, Economic Affairs Committee has launched an inquiry into central bank digital currencies, uh, and they're asking for uh, input from everybody really on this. Um, so let's have a look and see what uh, Lord Forsyth of Drumlean is saying. He's the chair of the uh, Lords Economic Affairs Committee. Uh, the government and Bank of England must carefully consider the implications of creating a new state-backed form of digital cash, he said. Uh, if you if you have a view on any aspect of central bank digital currencies, look at our call for evidence and let us know what you think. So actually, it's quite a wide-ranging call for evidence. So let's have a look at the, the uh, questions they're asking. First of all, what are the main issues driving central banks to explore uh, CBDCs? Well, we might say it's control, but there are many other things as well. We might say that it's something to do with the fact that the global financial system is in a state of total collapse and they're looking for some way to get uh, to find a route out of that. But anyway, uh, what are the main benefits and risks of C CBDCs? Uh, could the proposed benefits of a CBDC be achieved through improvements to the existing payment systems? How could the Bank of England and HM Treasury address concerns over privacy and traceability of payments when exploring CBDC design? Uh, what effects might a CBDC have on the financial sector? Uh, and it goes on, what effect might a CBDC have on competition and innovation in the payments and the payments in fintech sectors? How might a CBDC affect monetary policy? How might a CBDC change the Bank of England's role and responsibilities? Uh, how should HM Treasury and the Bank of England engage with the public on research and development of a CBDC? And finally, uh, how might CBDCs affect the economic foreign policies or geopolitical influence of different countries and economic areas? Are there implications for effectiveness uh, of economic sanctions? Uh, so that is the range of questions that they're looking for public input on. Uh, and uh, undoubtedly, we will have the link to that uh, inquiry uh, under the, in the show notes under the news program uh, later on this afternoon, if you want to uh, actually input uh, some comments. Uh, as you read through those, Mike, I was thinking, okay, so somebody's already thought through these questions. There is a need to ask each of these particular questions because these are each of the areas where the whole policy has already been completely set up. So this is this is just an exercise with the pub, what we'll say the wider public and and commerce 
to to get the answers they want. Uh, well, I don't. Is that too cynical? I think that is a little cynical. We'll wait, we'll wait and see. But David, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that list of questions? I thought the last one was very interesting. Sanctions. Yes, because of course, if uh, you are dependent on the world economy and the, and you're dependent on access to that world economy via a digital currency that can be switched off from an office in Switzerland, uh, then you better toe the line. In the Second World War, the uh, Nazi uh, government was printing £5 notes in an attempt to cause inflation and economic collapse in Britain. Uh, this sounds like something uh, much more effective. Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, but it goes to it's it's at all levels, isn't it? Because you're talking I mean, that that final question is talking about a geopolitical international level, but this control because it is also a retail uh, a retail currency. This control goes to the individual level as well. It is extremely dangerous. And uh, so we'll just remind everybody of uh, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz. Uh, uh, cash Friday initiative and maybe it really needs to be cash every day and uh, people, David, need to stop using uh, electronic payments wherever possible. Uh, yeah, that, that could well be it. In fact, um, uh, look to, if you can, um, use uh, gold and silver instead if you're, if you're negotiating with someone else with a like mind. Okay, uh, and now let's move on to uh, COVID matters. And well, the National Audit Office is doing us a big favor because they've published the uh, COVID spending tracker so we can track how much money is being spent on government COVID uh, policies. 370 billion pounds is the estimated lifetime cost of government spending as a result of COVID-19 as of September, 2021. Uh, and uh, so they're looking at uh, the government having spent 154 billion on support for businesses. 84 billion on support for health and social care, 67 billion on support for other public services and emergency responses, 60 billion on support for individuals, and 5 billion on other support and operational expenditure. They say that our COVID-19 cost tracker is an interactive tool that brings together data from around the UK, from across the UK government, I should say. It provides estimates of the cost of measures announced in response to COVID-19 pandemic and how much the government has spent on these measures so far. Uh, where this information is publicly available or has been provided to us by government departments. Uh, so that's what it's looking like at the moment. Uh, are you impressed by that level of spending? Well, who couldn't be? I mean, that's that's enough to uh, elevate anything into the, into the world of fantasy. Um, it would be more impressive if we could actually employ ambulance drivers when we needed ambulances and lorry drivers when we needed lorries and there was fuel in the pumps. That would be even more impressive. But, you know, 370 billion, it's a big number. Isn't 370 billion more than twice the whole annual budget of the uh, NHS? I think it is. Yes, yes, but... but uh, we... Sorry, David, go ahead. What? UK GDP is what? Uh, Three... What? Uh, about two, two and a half trillion. No, it's not. Yeah, it's two not, and a half trillion. Yeah, I don't think it's that much yet. Uh, but but but, but UK UK government debt's gone up recently from forty percent of um, GDP before the financial crisis to eighty percent. So we we've put on a um, you know forty percent of GDP. So it's a, that's three hundred seventy billion is quite a small number. That that's not all of it. 
That's uh, well, maybe, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe a, thir a third of recent spending. I, I appreciate that's just, just the, the narrow COVID costs. Um, but you've got to remember that there's been an awful lot more money printing beyond that. Uh, that's money printing. That's a different thing altogether. Now, <laughs> let's, let's just have a look at this. Uh, our new article looks at the people most likely to test positive for COVID-19 between the 14th of March uh, to the 11th of September 2021. Uh, this is from the Office for National Statistics. Uh, and they're claiming that people who have received one or two doses of coronavirus vaccine were less likely to test positive for coronavirus in the fortnight ending 11th of September 2021. Now, they don't say whether that's because those people are feeling that they've had the jab and therefore they don't need the test. Uh, they don't mention that because this is all based on PCR tests and computer models, once again. Uh, people living in a household of three or more occupants were more likely to test positive for COVID-19 in the fortnight ending uh, September 11th, uh, 2021. Though, so, so David, uh, I just wanted to run this one by you because this one had me in stitches a little bit. Apparently, if you're living in a household with three or more people, you're more likely to have somebody test positive in that household than in households of single occupancy. Could that not be to do with the fact that there's three or more people in the house? <laughs> oh, who came up with that one, Neil Ferguson? Yes, it's a good question. Uh, and they went on to say, uh, just to put this back up on screen again, uh, they went on to say that uh, people who've never worn a face mask in enclosed spaces were more likely to test positive uh, in that fortnight, apparently. Uh, and those who reported uh, socially distanced contact with 11 or more people, uh, they test were more likely to test positive than people that didn't uh, report contact with anyone. That's, that's another amazing Amazing uh, statistic there. So, so really, I'm I'm sorry, ONS. You're not doing a very good job in this particular case because uh, you're not providing any explanation. Uh, you're just uh, uh, putting out statistics which might grab a headline, but they're not. Uh, <laughs> there's, no, there's no seriousness about it. I think it's sad to see. We we can say that over the period of the COVID so-called crisis, we've watched the ONS become a politicised body, a politicised arm of government. So it's not about informing the public of accurate statistics. So the public has the information. It's presenting statistics in a form to drive government policy. We, we have seen the ONS completely change its style of operation. And I think that's very sad for people working in that organisation. I think that's right. Now, here's the mail. Um, and the question they're asking is, why are so many suffering dreadful COVID symptoms but still testing negative? Sarah Vine was convinced she had it, but uh, countless tests said otherwise. She's far, far from alone. So what is going on? And the crux of this article is, it's quite a long article, is that uh, basically, uh, even if you test negative um, and you happen to have a set of symptoms, which might include a temperature, a runny nose, uh, a cough, and these kinds of things, then you're definitely got COVID because it can't be anything else because there's no other respiratory illnesses out there um, which might cause similar symptoms. Um, and so this is quite an incredible article. So in the run up to winter, when we know that the government policy is going to be that it's a combination of, you know, we're in, in, in at risk from COVID, from influenza, massive resurgence of influenza, and also uh, this other thing that uh, called RSV, which is pretty harmless. Uh, these three together are going to be the the uh, triple whammy of this winter, and yet we've got an article like this. It's a bit 
it, it's a bit unclear exactly what they're doing here, other than just to mess up people's minds and not really understand what's going on. And uh, sorry, just before you, you say, Brian, I just wanted to sort of show another example of this, because here we've got the BBC with an article here saying uh, long COVID, less common than feared, says the ONS. Uh, but then here's The Guardian saying post illness symptoms like low, long COVID are probably more common than we think. Um, so we're just being bombarded continuously with these uh, random headlines, which seem to say one thing one day and another thing the next day. Uh, and uh, well, where does that leave people? Well, it leaves them in no man's land, which is where the government wants them, because if they're uh, confused and we are confused, we don't know what's going on, very easy to manipulate. I'd like to know whether those people have been jabbed. The ones who are suffering these symptoms, have they had a jab? Well, this is the, exactly well. that isn't addressed in the article, as you would expect. But, but yeah. uh, yes, this is the question indeed. Now, uh, here is, uh, well, who is this? Oxford uh, Vaccine Group pushing this out on Twitter this morning. Around the world, there are 117 COVID-19 vaccine candidates undergoing clinical trials and 185 candidates in preclinical development. Uh, and they link to uh, a Gavi article on this, which we'll show you in one second. Now, this is a very interesting tweet because 117 COVID-19 vaccine candidates undergoing clinical trials. That includes uh, the vaccine candidates which are already deployed, um, by the way. But so let's have a look at the Gavi article here. Uh, the COVID-19 vaccine race over, uh, this is their weekly update of the 22nd of September. Scientists around the world are working faster than ever to develop and produce vaccines that can stop the spread of COVID-19 with 21 vaccines now being rolled out in countries worldwide. Uh, here is an at-a-glance overview of these vaccines and recent development uh, of candidates in clinical trials. Um, and they go through explaining the situation. They say that candidate vaccines make it to human clinical trials. They first go through phase one trials primarily to test vaccine safety, determine dosages and identify any potential side effects. We've heard all this before, but they're reiterating it in this one. Phase two trials further explore safety and start to investigate efficacy on larger groups. Phase three trials, which are the trials that are currently under, under being undergone by the vaccines that are already deployed. Uh, which few vaccines ever make it to have, are much larger, involving thousands or tens of thousands, or in this case, billions. Uh, and uh, then phase four, uh, the final stage, phase four trials is conducted after national regulatory approval and involves further monitoring in a wide population over a longer time frame uh, as a form of post-marketing surveillance, pharmacovigilance in brackets. However, not all vaccines uh, that have been approved for domestic uh, use, I presume that means, uh, are in phase four trials, including the ones that have been rolled out already. Um, so uh, this, they continue pushing uh, this same narrative, uh, and it never, at no point do they ever make the point in simple, clear, black and white language that anybody can understand that the current vaccines currently deployed are still in phase three trials. Yeah. Where does that take us? Well, I think another couple of emails coming in because this is this is our audience reflecting reality of what's happening out there. So this is about imposed jabs on care staff. Uh, the uh, sender says, I work in the NHS in community, but not a registered nurse. So I've looked at their legislation. <clears throat> they say, uh, they say uh, what they say means I must be double jabbed to enter care home. And unless I'm incorrect, it does not make sense 
in the section amendment to section 12 safe care and treatment number five it says it only to registered professionals and then the description goes on and to me looks like to be saying the patient uh, coming to the professional's place of work i think that means but there is then a link through to the legislation this person's looking at so we're going to say there's anybody with experience in the law around uh, employment and compulsory jabs can you have a look at this and um, help give us some uh, professional feedback on what the exact situation is uh, this one is uh, tragic it says my brother is currently in an induced coma in an icu he was diagnosed with covid despite his many negative lateral flow tests the hospital hospital could not wait to put him on a ventilator he did not even try the inhaled steroid uh, butanide, which is being used successfully in other countries. He's been on the ventilator for almost four weeks. At one point he was improving, but then he caught a hospital-acquired infection. We're currently fighting to get him effective treat treatments like ivermectin, IV high-dose vitamins C and D, as per the FLCCC protocols. All we get told is that the hospital is following national protocols and the consensus of the consultants in the hospital. They keep saying there are no double-blind placebo trials for ivermectin or evidence that any of the treatments that we want work. As you know, there's plenty of evidence out there. There are no such trials for the vaccines. We as a family believe the hospitals don't want COVID patients to get better using any treatments such as ivermectin and vitamin C, as the vaccine agenda can't be carried out if there are treatments for COVID. My brother has been medically kidnapped we can't see him and have no say in his treatment. We feel we will have to take legal action to force the consultants to treat him properly, but time is running out. Over the past 18 months, nothing has changed in the way COVID, parents, the COVID patients are treated or not treated, and they are still being murdered by ventilators and sedatives. So uh, a tragic email, but of course it's raising very um, pertinent points that people are going into these uh, locked COVID wards. They're being given a particular treatment and the relatives are being completely denied access or an input into what's happening with the patients. So David, we're in a UK where people can be locked, disappear inside the NHS. And if rel relatives come to the opinion that that treatment is actually killing uh, their nearest and dearest, there's nothing they can do about it at the moment. Nothing they can do. And of course, if it's a child, uh, you know that the NHS will take legal action in order to continue their course of action. Uh, this uh, death by ventilator issue uh, was, was brought home to me in the uh, period when we had almost no COVID cases after the, 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 the first wave and then we had a summer and it, as it normally does, completely went away. Didn't happen this year because we're vaccinated. We had actually, we had much more illness during the summer this year. Uh, but uh, the COVID went away. So the, the BBC were running scare stories about how bad it was and how it, how it could come back. And to get people with horrendous stories, they were producing people who were diagnosed with COVID, were sitting up in bed, were engaged in texting people on the phone and conducting business on their phone by email. And then the NHS um, team would say to them, we think we can care better for you if we put you under and ventilate you. They were then put into a, a coma, uh, put on a ventilator, and 
they couldn't be re revived round or there were very, it was very touch and go. And it was weeks and weeks and weeks before they could get them back to consciousness. And they were saying, well, look how horrible COVID is. And I'm listening to this and thinking, no, look how inappropriate the treatment was. Sure, that's a story here. But of course, the BBC never asked any of those questions. Um, and the, the other aspect of this is, of course, the amount of people who are in hospital and the amount of people who are dying, which is unlike the time of the, the initial COVID, um, uh, your 2020 year, which was mostly normal. Um, there are a lot of excess deaths now and the hospitals are busy and we, we really need to know why. And no one's asking the question why. It's not COVID. Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, now, a uh, bit of uh, censorship news and The Verge here reporting that Twitter is seeking input as it explores filter and limit controls on tweets. So Twitter is seeking input. There's an opportunity for people to let them know what they think. Uh, and uh, so what are they planning on here? They're, so they've shared some concept images of how this might work. Uh, Twitter would detect whether or not you've received harmful replies. Harmful is not defined. Uh, and then prompt you to turn on uh, filter or limit. Uh, and if you have filter on, potentially potentially harmful replies to your tweet uh, wouldn't be shown to you or anyone else. Um, so this is how it would sort of look uh, if we just bring that on screen. Uh, you would switch on on the left-hand column there, you would switch on limit potentially unwelcome accounts from replying. And then the person who uh, uh, replies who is limited would see a message uh, basically saying your tweet is only visible to you. It's not visible to anybody else. Um, and so, uh, well, here we go, David. Uh, this is all going to be an automated system. Twitter is taking uh, advice or taking suggestions from people about whether they would allow individuals, if they have that uh, facility switched on, to then maybe go be able to see some of the tweets that have been uh, uh, restricted by this mechanism and maybe permit those people to tweet in the future and so on on there or repl add replies in the future. But uh, once again, we have a, a social media company that is 100% on board with, uh, with government agendas here on making sure that only certain types of narratives can ever be presented uh, on, a, on a wide basis. Yes, and it's about narratives. It's not about abuse. As you know, I've been thrown off of Twitter for for tweeting accurate government statistics about vaccine damage. That's what did it. Right? And Twitter's gone through a whole series of explanations as to why my, my account was closed. Uh, none of them make any sense. None of them could be substantiated. Uh, but of course, uh, they don't need to do that. They just say, no, we're not letting you back on. And as far as uh, the Twitter algorithm is concerned, I can assure you it's completely incapable of telling the difference between abuse and non-abusive tweets. Uh, it gets that wrong all the time, every day. Yes. Yeah. Well, what, what came into my mind, of course, is that people uh, posting reasonable evidence tweets back on the bigger uh, Twitter pages. So who we're talking about, Boris Johnson, for example, or Chris Whitty, whoever it is, you've got the opportunity to really take public opinion back in front of those people. Well, they will be the people using this censorship to make sure that the public can't react with the nonsense they're tweeting out. Yes. Okay, and uh, just uh, sticking with a similar topic here, very briefly, The Guardian headline is Undisclosed Private Companies Analyzing Facial Data from the NHS App. So they're saying that data security experts have previously criticized the lack of transparency around uh, a contract with the NHS held by 
uh, iProve, whose facial verification software is used to perform automated ID checks on people signing up for the NHS app. Uh, and they're making the point that this uh, the, the data is going to another organization called Teleperformance. Um, and, but they say, don't worry about it because the data is only going, it's only being processed by British uh, citizens uh, and, uh, and it's a British company and all this kind of stuff. But actually, when you start looking at Teleperformance, here they are. Uh, what are they all about? Uh, they are, uh, our differences make us stronger, apparently. Our leaders come from different backgrounds and work with each other uh, and with employees in different parts of the world. So uh, what's interesting is if you have a look at their leadership, uh, here this is their executive committee and you'll find people from France, uh, from the United States uh, and other countries, uh, but you won't find any Brits in amongst this lot. And in fact, this goes for the management team as well. Uh, so uh, yeah, the NHS app then sharing data, uh, there's no transparency as to who actually receives the facial recognition data uh, and what to what use it's being made uh, afterwards. So, uh, well, Yes, what more can we say? Well, yeah, pretty obvious what's going on. Yes, uh, which brings us, uh, David, to um, Jimmy Savile and the BBC. And uh, this is Guardian reporting here that Steve Coogan has decided he's going to play Jimmy Savile in a sensitive BBC drama. Uh, why on earth would anybody make that decision? This is very strange. Right? He's saying that it's an important story that needs to be told. Uh, really? I think we know what the story is. It, is this the BBC trying to save its reputation? Um, they've gone to uh, a character generally viewed as likable um, and asked him, a comedian, asked him to play the piece. It's all very odd. I mean, it, it's, it's possible to actually want to explore how he got away um, with what he got away with, um, how it was covered up. Um, how um, reports were squashed that, that, he, that he was offending, uh, that he was abusing children. Um, but I rather doubt it. Uh, no, indeed. And, uh, well, this is the independence take on this then. G uh, BBC Jimmy Savile drama branded disgusting and sparks hypocrisy accusations. A number of tweets as well on this. So uh, this is Ray. Has anybody seen what the BBC are producing now? I feel sorry for any victims uh, that were affected by him. That's Jimmy Savile having to watch through this production. I can't believe Steve Coogan has signed up to it. Uh, here's another one. Personally, I don't agree with dramas about these kinds of people. I don't see what purpose they serve apart from sensationalism. Well, I think David just touched on that. It could be very much whitewashing the BBC's uh, role in this whole thing. Uh, and then the tweet goes on to say they should be thrown uh, straight in the bin and never mentioned or thought of again. Well, I don't agree with that necessarily because uh, we need to get to the bottom of what actually went on. But David, uh, you know, if if the purpose is, if if they'd intended to carry out some kind of serious investigation as to what actually went on, surely they would be producing it in a documentary style rather than some kind of drama. Well, yes, this is a this is a, the worrying thing. Why a drama? Because a drama it, it implies a certain. Um, uh, uh, movability of the truth, 
right? Because if you're if you're presenting a drama, you'll be you'll choose the the deeper truth, and you will actually manipulate facts to suit your message. That's how it's done, and that's accepted in the world of drama. Whereas if you're looking at an actual understanding of of real events, you're looking at a documentary approach, and it's it's entirely different. Um, it seems it, it, I found it troubling that the BBC the BBC should even be attempting this. Um, and uh, well, it remains to be seen just how how bad it is. But I was also thinking that you know how how does the victims of which there are thousands how are the victims going to feel about this? Uh, I, I I can't imagine it'd be good. Uh, no, uh, but we don't have to worry uh, because here's Tim Tim Davy. He's had a pay rise uh, and he deserves it. He thinks um, so. He's getting an extra seventy five thousand pounds a year. This will take a salary up to five hundred and twenty five thousand. Uh, so that's uh, that's quite good. I mean, what... well, he's getting that, Mike, because because he didn't uh, broadcast all the protests up in London. He <laughs> did the government's bidding. The BBC refused to show uh, certainly over half a million, probably up towards a million people protesting on the streets of London. BBC didn't cover it. Seventy five thousand pound pay rise. I mean all makes complete sense. Um, well, if the BBC didn't cover that, uh, and they certainly didn't really do justice to the Savile, the Savile uh, uh, story, what uh, what has the BBC done with respect to uh, Celtic Football Club and the abuse that took place there and the ongoing abuse of uh, the victims? Well, not very much, certainly on the latter. Um, this uh, is a, 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 a screenshot from um, a poster that the uh, some of the the victims and survivors of the extensive child sexual abuse at Celtic Celtic Boys Club and Celtic Football Club um, are um, uh, making into a large banner to protest at COP26 to raise the profile of how they are being treated by Celtic Football Club. So good luck to them on that. Uh, we'll look out for that um, that banner uh, being unfurled in Glasgow. Uh, in November, and uh, hopefully uh, people will take take heed and uh, start to listen to what uh, what the victims and survivors have suffered, not just originally, but uh, the way they've been treated uh, by Celtic Football Club uh, on an ongoing basis. Um, okay, now David, uh, you have a bit of video for us. Uh, do you want to just introduce it? Yes, the background to this is uh, the Scottish Government were running a teacher training day um, on the subject of uh, LGBT inclusive education. And um, one, of, one teacher who happens to be uh, uh, Richard Lucas, the leader of the Scottish Family Party, um, signed up for this uh, teacher training day. And during uh, the event, uh, there was an online, it was an online event, uh, you'll hear the um, somewhat ungrammatical uh, lecturer uh, explaining his points. Uh, during the, this event, uh, Richard Lucas was asking some questions, some quite reasonable questions. Uh, it did not go well. Let's see what the reaction was. To improve outcomes for LGBT learners, the effective and meaningful way that this will be implemented is when inclusion presses against all of the quality indicators through leadership to curriculum to outcomes when inclusion is part of your vision and values of your school and is embodied within a whole school approach. What LGBTeducation.scot can support you to do 
is to identify where within curriculum you can begin to take that proactive educational approach. Now at this point, I want to just jump over to the platform, so I'm going to swap my screen share. And I'm going to give you a little look at the platform as it currently is. So this is the lgbteducation.scot platform. It's been live for around about one hour, so it's fresh, it's available, it's new. And ultimately it has been developed as a one stop platform for you as teachers to access go on the platform and it's teachers who have contributed to the implementation toolkit, the resources and the e-learning. So as you can see, it's quite simple and easy to navigate. As you scroll through the homepage, everything is there for you and immediately accessible. The showcase resources uh, will in future provide an evolving platform and opportunity for schools to highlight their practice and their work in this area, to share the innovative approaches that they've been taking in terms of connecting this to the broader ethos and broader curriculum goals within the school. So if we jump over to have a little look at resources, you can see that the curriculum resources are broken by primary and secondary. If we move to primary, you can see the second level lesson plan, a workbook available on discrimination, worksheets available for numeracy and mathematics to suit whatever your curriculum planning or your lesson planning is as you're using it. You've got lesson notes and teaching notes which walk you through how to deliver the lesson, how this connects with the experiences and outcomes and benchmarks and the learning intentions and success criteria. And there's also pupil worksheets included as well. So these lessons can be lifted and printed and delivered as they are, but I would always encourage you to look at them and consider how they can connect to your own existing curriculum area. And there's a lot available we've got to teach about. There, poor Richard Lucas. Poor Richard Lucas asked three questions uh, and he was removed from the meeting because you can't ask questions um, in, the, in totalitarian Scotland. Asking questions is, is, for, is, is forbidden. It's just, it's just uh, terrible. And you get thrown out of meetings. So... Is there only one view? Are other viewpoints going to be listened to? Well, in a way, he got his answer. Now, they were talking there about um, the new LGBTeducation.scot. I would ask people who are interested in, in education to have a look into this and, and drop us a line on what you find and the links you find. I started to look at it today. I've almost scratched the surface. Big websites, all new. Um, I'll take you through what I found, but I think there's more to there's more to uncover. Um, so there, um, what what sort of things is uh, is being covered in uh, LGBTeducation.scot? Well, the story of Lady Gaga is is one thing they're covering. Um, now the the this is being Lady Gaga has been held up as some sort of a saintly Joan of Arc type figure, both in the uh, uh, image that's shown here and in the way that the, the materials used in the classroom. It um, writes, this lesson plan will support you to teach about Lady Gaga, her involvement in various campaign efforts for equal rights, supporting pupils to learn about 
inequality, protest action and rights movements, and to consider the role of celebrity in advancing awareness for equality and human rights within both historical and contemporary framework. Now, I, I point out this is not the equality, this is not the human rights that means you're allowed to protest or meet your family or attend a funeral. Not those human rights. No, not those ones. We don't like those human rights. It's other human rights. It's ones that suit the agenda. Um, and this has been run by an organisation called Time for Inclusive Education, or TAI. So this, so the Scottish government fund TAI, and TAI run the education programme on behalf of the Scottish government. So it, it's TAI's a charity, a campaigning group, and um, they're operating as kind of subcontractors for the Scottish government. So someone writes here, TAI is such a unique organisation and how they tailor your, your resources to the curriculum. I've never attended a training session before with, which both informed about social justice and provided ideas for embedding this into the curriculum. Um, TAI is a unique organisation. They were around at the same time uh, that Notre Dame Person uh, was campaigning. And the anger and, uh, in the faces of the lovies and the political um, uh, establishment when the annual awards, the annual political awards in Scotland gave the most, um, gave the award for political campaign to no to name person and not to Ty was a thing to behold. Um, so ties funded by the Scottish Government, endorsed by the Scottish Government, indeed the whole of the Parliament. Um, you see here when it was launched, you, uh, all of the, the parliamentarians standing on the steps at Holyrood with their um, Thai um, uh, posters uh, endorsing the campaign. And this is uh, a teacher training process. So they're, they're teaching teachers how to teach the young. Um, so they, they, they say uh, they've got a CPT pathway um, and a two-stage delivering LGBT inclusive education. It's always explained as anti-bullying. The justification is anti-bullying, and, and who wouldn't be anti-bullying? But in practice, it doesn't mean anti-bullying. It means promotion of um, the various LGBT lifestyles as in every way equivalent, in every way normal, in every way healthy, in every way positive, and in no way secondary to traditional family relationships. That's what they're promoting. And that's a, a political statement and a huge change. I mean, on, on, a, on a historical perspective, a complete shift over uh, compared to everything that the country has and the people have um, believed for the entire history of the nation. We're changing it now and we're not allowing any debate about how we're changing it. We're just changing it because we're so sure we're right. So stage one of the two-stage process is to reframe the teachers. So we have uh, e-learning to reframe the teachers, so the teachers have to think the right things, uh, and they'll, they'll, they'll have to pass a test on thinking the right things. Um, and then stage two is curriculum development, where the uh, LGBT activists go to the school, they get state funding to go to the school in order to uh, change the school teaching processes to something that's more uh, favourable. Um, this input builds on the knowledge and information gained in stage one. Uh, the e-learning module with a focus on curriculum planning, interdisciplinary learning and progression learning, whatever that is. Um, I, now, obviously, this is supported across the Scottish political establishment. It's uh, got uh, 
almost universal support in the Scottish Parliament thinks is lovely. The, the press will not criticise this. The reason that we are highlighting it here is in part because the mainstream press are silent on this issue. They are, they're endorsing it. The people do not. The people see the problems. Uh, if you look at the comments page when this thing is, pro is promoted, but the press will not pick up any of the questions that the, that the people are asking. Um, so you hear, here you see EIS, that's the union, uh, various uh, uh, Scottish government funded charities, charities which uh, apparently uh, represent the, the view of parents, but they take government money so they don't. Oh, and LBGT Youth Scotland. You might remember that one, Brian. LGBT Youth Scotland uh, was the organisation formerly run by the worst paedophile in the history of Scotland. Uh, I've had to I've had to actually sanitise even this sanitised report. So grievous is what he did. Um, it, this is um, James Rennie. He ran LGBT Youth Scotland. And uh, this is when the Scotsman reported on the trial, uh, the worst ever abuse trial. Uh, they uh, said that, amongst other things, that the jurors... Um, um, had such an, a, a traumatic event just listening to the evidence that uh, for the first time in legal history, professional counsellors had to be put on standby, ready to assist should any of the jurors find it all too much. Uh, they were being exposed to the, to the evidence. Um, this also caused uh, experienced police officers and lawyers to recoil in horror, and it was truly horrendous. Um, so he, he used to run LBGT Youth Scotland, but that won't be on the curriculum, right? I would have thought if you're speaking to young people who, who are saying I'm, I'm gay or I'm lesbian, that one of the things that would be prudent to say is that there are predators out there and some of the charitable organisations that might say we're here to help you will contain predators and you have to be careful because look what happened with James Rennie. That would be, I would, I would suggest, actually useful. Uh, information to make young people safer, but I bet that's not on the curriculum. Um, and of and course, David, to, to interject, uh, James Rennie was uh, one of the common the charity Common Purpose operatives, uh, and so uh, he he had access to children through or young um, young people is a correct uh, correct description through the Common Purpose uh, networks. And to my knowledge, Common Purpose never conducted any investigation as to what may have taken place through their own quasi-secret networks. And the same with uh, a man called Matthew Byrne, who was involved in Merseyside. Um, so going back to the lgbteducation.scot website, uh, they're talking about working with parents, carers and families, one of the few... Uh, cases where the word parent actually appears in this document. And although the main text says, uh, reflects the UNCRC statement that the family is a fundamental group in society and the natural environment for the growth and well-being of all members, and particularly children, should be afforded the necessary protection and assistance so that it can fully assume its responsibilities within the community, which is a hugely supportive statement, which they, re which they re uh, repeat, the bit in the box says, I had to run away from my parents because they were not happy about who I am. Teachers should know that while parents should, should respect the uh, child's gender identity, they don't always do so, end quote. 
trans young person. So this is saying, at the same time as saying, yes, parents are, are, are important, that's also suggesting to the teachers, parents are a threat, parents won't listen, and you have to take the, the, the young person's uh, case against their parents, even though those parents are motivated by trying to help that young person and care about them in the way that the state never will. So they point at evidence. It's all evidence-based, you see. Um, why support for trans youth matters? And they, they quote figures, which are startling figures. Um, the difference that supporting trans youth um, as opposed to being unsupportive makes um, and the attempted suicide goes from 57%, 57%, down to 4%. Um, housing problems disappear, and there's all sorts of huge advantages. So it's very impressive figures. And this is quoted in the government document that says, this is how you have to teach children. And this is the, this is the why. This is the justification, because it's Gerfec is getting it right for every child. These children are like this. This is a huge improvement. We must do this for their, for their benefit. Um, and where did that information come from? It came from uh, the TransPulse project in Canada. Uh, TransPulse, building our communities through research. So this is an organization that wishes to build the, the LGBT community through research. This is not um, a, 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 an organization that's looking at the situation dispassionately. This is an organization of activists who are looking to build their community and they're using research as their tool. That's that's the source of the only factual evidence cited in this document. Um, so the Pulse project here is based in Ontario, um, and it's looking to um, uh, it, it's, got, it's, it's, sorry, it's run by a steering committee composed of three allies and five community members who contributed their unique, unique personal and professional experience and skills to ensure the success of the research. Um, so. You have here an organization that is looking at promoting um, a particular ideology that's held by activists, right? So this is not research that is in any way um, neutral in its, in its outlook. It's not um, searching for truth. It's searching for a particular political outcome. I've got a few of uh, information here, just a few of the people involved. Uh, Greta Barr, co-principal investigator, associate professor of epidemiolo epidemiology and biostatistics at Western University. Um, she is a long-term ally of LGBT. Um, Rebecca Hammond, um, who uh, transformed the state Trans 101 course into the groundbreaking anti Sexism training modules. So this is an activist and uh, and campaigner, and we have got here Kyle Scanlon, a co-investigator. Um, uh, he is uh, uh, he's got a passion for social justice and community capacity building and mobilisation. He was a member of the Gay, Bi, Queer, Trans Men Working Group. Uh, he is another activist. So you're having people here from a very small activist cell in Canada produce a document that, that says that you should follow a particular line which they want politically, and that is now being 
um, uncritically adopted in, into the Scottish government policy building agenda, and it's now being used to teach teachers how to treat all children in our schools. And nobody at any point seems to have questioned um, the validity of this of this research. Has it been peer reviewed? Is it is it contradicted by other research? Is the fact that all of the people generating it all all the people generating it have a political axe to grind, have an agenda, right? They are activists. They are not um, scientists in the, in, the, in the search for truth. They are activists in the search for a political outcome. It doesn't seem to have concerned anyone that this is now driving schools policy and teacher training in Scotland. Uh, David, the quick answer is, of course, most people have no idea that this is going on, but this is part of the change to participatory democracy, where the charity, however that's come into uh, being, can help set the agenda. A lot more work needed to be done on that. So thank you for bringing that to us. Uh, we're just going to end here with the BBC, which, of course, is thoroughly on board this. Uh, BBC Newsbeat targeting people from the age of 16 upwards, the BBC says, but of course, much younger people uh, are watching BBC Newsbeat. Uh, just have a look at this little video clip before we end today's extended news. I decided to go for something subdued and palatable today <laughs> with my look. When I got the call, I was like, this happening now to me? Oh my God. I feel 75. Well, you are. Do you know what I mean? I am. <laughs> this is my nan. Yeah. Hiya. <laughs> Is that um, Crystal's interview? Oh, hi, yeah, just saying hi. <laughs> You're right. Can make that tea, though. My name is Victoria. Uh, so uh, you can find that clip on BBC Newsbeat. Uh, what's particularly interesting about it is that there's some controversy because a woman has come into the drag queen scene and apparently this has upset the apple cart. But the key bit to remember that the BBC is is clearly aiming for children, young, young teenagers to be watching this sort of material. It's grooming the children at the same time. We've got so-called uh, documentaries being put out about Jimmy Savile. This is an attack on the mental health of the nation and it's an attack on our children, of course. We've run well over time, so we better end there. David, we're going to say thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to all of our audience. Uh, thank you to the overseas viewers. Um, why are we pushing out the information we are? Because to be able to fight, we need to understand what the enemy is and how the enemy is working. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Well, we'll be... Uh... Back in a few seconds for extra uh, if you're on the UK column live stream. Otherwise, 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.